2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. Hey everyone, it's Daniel Elwood and Robert Johnson, The Last Nighters, and we are going to talk about the Outlaw Josie Wales. This is a bit of a change-up for you. I know it's uh, uh, almost in the baseball season, and we had to pull the old switcheroo, put in a pinch hitter, change the batting order, whatever we had to do. So the uh, Outlaw Josie Wales will be the show tonight for episode 34, and next week with a special guest, we will be doing Schooling the World. So look for that next week. This week, Clint Eastwood, hot country western action movie, episode 34. Show notes and more at lastnighters.com slash 34. Uh, let's say a little to my uh, compadre, comanchero, Roberto, before we get into the Google description. At the 11th hour, we switch it up on your asses. And now we're doing a western with uh, old Clint Eastwood. Uh, hope you guys like it. Let's uh, let's check out the old descripciones, comancheros. All right, coming at you with the Google description, The Outlaw Josie Wales, 1976 action-adventure, 2 hours and 15 minutes, starring and directed by the old Clint Eastwood himself. 7.9 on the IMDb, 95% Rotten Tomatoes, 69, 69% Metacritic, and 89% of the Google users like it. And the description is thus. Josie Wales, played by Clint Eastwood, watches helplessly as his wife and child are murdered by Union men, led by Captain Terrell played by Bill McKinney. Seeking revenge, Wales joins the Confederate Army. He refuses to surrender when the war ends, but his fellow soldiers go to hand over their weapons and are massacred by Terrell. Wales guns down some of Terrell's men and flees to Texas, where he tries to make a new life for himself, but the bounty on his head endangers him and his new surrogate family. Came out June 26, 1976, shortly after Robert was born. You were not even a month old. Director Clint Eastwood and uh, adapted from the Rebel Outlaw Josie Wales. What say you, Robert, on the description? Are you doxing me, you son of a bitch? You out there. You are out there. Damn it. Yeah, that's about the plot of the story, the movies that we watched, right? That was about it. What happened? Uh, you got your Clint Eastwoods. I don't know. Is this one of his first director jobs? He did an okay job, I guess. I don't know. The, the, the whole narrative of this film kind of kind of messed with me like i liked i like josie for the most part i wouldn't want to hang out with him he's always spitting on you so i don't know if i'd want to like I mean, he even spit like a dog isn't there like a hollywood rule you can't you can't hurt the dog you can't kill the dog you can't spit on a dog if there's not a spit on dog rule there needs to be a spit on dog rule oh there ought to be a law huh, robert yeah there ought to be a law daniel in a governmental body that oversees it and is appointed and there needs to be a dog spitting czar i think that's exactly what needs to happen because this is outrageous what happens in this film supposedly the protagonist who just goes around spitting on people um is supposedly the good guy because his family got murdered well, this isn't just some regular spit either. I mean, this isn't like even the magic loogie from Seinfeld. This is him like with chaw, right? He's chewing tobacco and spittoon spitting very accurately uh, on yeah. any anything that, that draws his ire. Yeah, it's like black tar that he's spitting on people's faces. He'll like kill a guy and then go and spit on their face, their dead face. <laughs> and then there's this, this dog who wants to follow him and he's like, eh dog spits on his face 
Well, he spits on the dog a few times. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why that dog would want to hang around this guy. All right, so jerk. I'm going to go blue on this for just a moment. So um, we know that Clint spits, right? But there is one one instance where he swallows, and that is when uh, near the end when Granny's cleaning the the cabin, the ranch cabin, and calls him lazy and says, "I'm surprised that you're such a lazy, non-hard worker." Uh, He wants to spit on that floor, but he swallows. So that's my. it's my really inappropriate moment. Uh, but speaking of Blue, the directing job on this, the entire beginning uh, opening montage of him seeking vengeance, training up to become a lethal um, killer, you know, really good with a with a handgun, uh, and then joining up with the Confederates to kind of become this roving death squad for justice, seeking vengeance. Uh, that entire five or ten minutes is all shot in a blue hue. Did, yeah. Did you think that that was significant in any way? Was that sort of like a dig against the union or was it just signifying like his mindset? Like he's super sad, he's grieving, but he's he's harnessing that energy to lash out and take vengeance. I guess I didn't I didn't I didn't think about that at all. Apparently you've thought about this movie way more than I have, which is fine. Um yeah, I what did you think of him just joining a death squad? does is he joins this rebel death squad who just go around and murdering these red legs who are apparently some sort of a northern death squad i don't know exactly all they all that we really get are that some people think the red legs were good like the old granny she thought the red legs were noble and her son actually died as one of the red legs but clint eastwood thought the red legs were all terrible and he was we're looking to murder every single last one of them Sure seems to me that if you're joining a death squad just to go murder a bunch of people, whether you know they've committed crimes or not, sure seems like maybe he shouldn't be the protagonist of the movie. I don't know. Yeah. Thoughts, Daniel? Well, so it's, it is it is a little bit muddy, you know, like you sort of get the idea that this is part of the Civil War, but it's out west, right? So it's not directly involved. You know, information takes a while to get to them and, and they're sort of on this on the edges of the skirmishes and things like that. So when his family gets attacked, it's by Union soldiers, but he wasn't a Confederate soldier at the time. He was just a guy with a family. And this, you know, these thin blue line thugs were just seeking, you know, people to rape and pillage and, and burn down the house. And, and they end up killing his kid and kidnapping his wife. And presumably she uh, is raped and murdered. And he gets uh, knocked the fuck out Friday style and then has to bury his kid. So I, I, I see well, not that he is part of the army, but he joins with like-mindeds. And it's not clear if they are a roving death squad, like we were just talking about, or if they were um, a Confederate kind of regiment or squad, or what would you call them? Like a death squad (laughs) right but if they were like actually you know flying the rebel flag and taking orders from um you know their goal was to hunt down and kill these red legs so what well what else would you call that well i mean call it a murder squad or a death squad or some sort of bounty killer murder death squad i don't know you take your pick you could choose right but what i'm saying is i don't think they were regular army i don't think they were like we're siding with this side in the civil war and you're on that side and we're gonna fight no i think this was personal this was like no you red legs are committing war crimes you know you're awful people you're going around killing and raping um indiscriminately you're not just fighting soldiers you're you know sherman style you're destroying citizens individual people you know like 
innocent parties. And so they were seeking vengeance in that regard, not just, you know, defending their, I don't know, separate country, right? Because after the secessions, it was a separate country. In fact, each state is technically a separate country, at least back at that time. Right. But this is this goes back to our um, RICO trial discussion, where if you're just a member of an organization, does that make you guilty of the crimes of any other member in that organization? Sure seems like Clint Eastwood, as our protagonist, is treating every member of the Red Legs organization as equally guilty as every other member and guilty of all their crimes. And he calls himself, you know, judge, jury, and executioner. Yeah. And uh, that's just the way it is in this show. But the Red Legs are a contingent uh, within an army. Like, they are all soldiers who are, like, they, they're, they're in the same, like, unit, right? Like, the Red Legs are a subset of Union soldiers. And the Red Legs are the ones going out doing all this really, really evil shit. It's like... In a way, you know, they're sort of all complicit together in this is what they do. They go down, attack innocent people, murder them, rape the women, etc. Whoa, whoa, whoa. How do we know this? There's one example of this happening, and then there's a couple, a couple of characters talking about various things. But there's the one example we get is this group of Union soldiers killing his family and burning his house down. Very Sherman of them. Very Sherman style. It is Sherman style. You know, it's how they do. But other than that, we're not given... Like, this is what they do all the time. This is the whole reason for their existence. No, actually, actually, I I disagree. We are given this. during. No, we're not. Granny thinks otherwise. Granny, Granny believes the propaganda bullshit from her, uh, from her son, saying that oh, we're doing great, wonderful things. When he was actually part of this murderous redlegs. Here's here's the give. Here's the tell. Okay, when the Confederates, the Confederacy loses the war, and the information finally makes its way. And like, hey, this you guys are the last remnant that hasn't surrendered yet. So come down tomorrow and turn in your weapons. We'll grant you full amnesty. You pledge to the Union, etc., and all's forgiven. When their leader, forget his name, Fletcher, goes down to take the men in and the Red Legs commander comes out and he's like, I'm not turning ourselves into this guy. He's murderous scum. He can't be trusted. He's the leader of the Red Legs and they do evil, vile shit. Is that all your evidence? That is, that is. And speaking of that's, that, speak- that's hearsay, sir. It's not admissible in this court. <laughs> well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe him uh, as a character witness. Now, here's the other thing I, I, I have to ask is... So Fletcher was turning on the men, but he didn't know that they were going to be murdered, right? Backstabbed by the Union? I don't think he knew, no. But he was getting paid to convince them to turn themselves in. But why, Almost certainly. Why does he mm-hmm. volunteer the information that Josie Wales isn't turning himself in? Like, why not just, I mean, I guess, you know, you don't have a movie if he does, uh, if he doesn't do this, but, <laughs> yeah, you know, why did just just say, hey, here's all the guys? Yeah, that's what you would say. You would say, yep, this is it. This is all of us. There's nobody else. Got every single man, unless he's being a total dick and hates whales. Yeah. But instead, instead he takes the other route and being like, except for Josie Wales, the legend, the unstoppable killing machine. You'll never get him. He's the best. Don't even try because he'll kill you all. Right. It's going to take more than five or six uh, Comancheros to bring him down. Now, the other. (laughs) Yeah, go ahead. Well, the other thing about him is when uh, the opening happens and his wife and, and son get taken and attacked. He's not a fighter at that point. He's just a farmer guy. And it's only in his grieving where he trains up. You know, there's like that montage where he's shooting that post and it sort of does these jump cuts and he gets better and better and better. And then, after, Oh, yeah, there's a montage. We all know about training montages. But it means you can become expert level. You know kung fu. You know, it's like you jack, all you need. You jack all you need is a series of shots of you doing a thing and all of a sudden you're the best. It's true. It is, it is so unequivocally true that it's in, it's in almost every movie. 
But that's right. The um, he must have taken that magic elixir from the charlatan. That's good for everything, even though he doesn't mm-hmm. know what's in it. But um, mm-hmm. so Josie, you know, trains up, and then when he's in the vigilante get death squad, Fletcher must make note that he's like the most driven, the most capable. And so when he does sort of out him, uh, he's right. You know, like you guys are gonna have trouble bringing this guy in because he is a fucking badass, and he is. He is a badass in this movie. Well, he is a badass, but we don't get to see the things that they're talking about him being a badass about. We see him doing his own badass stuff, but he seems to be a legend for stuff that happened in the credits montage, which is, eh, I kind of wish we'd been able to see a little bit of that because when they're talking about him being the best, we're like, really? He's the best? Okay, I guess, but I, I didn't really see any of that. Well, I think he did some some best type stuff. And also, I'll, I'll make note of this. It's often more effective to allude to something, to build up the legend of something, than to show it. You know, like a lot of times horror movies are, are more frightening if they don't show you the monster, but they make you imagine what the monster must be like, you know, in the tension that they build. So similarly, I think not showing him be this um, Mary Sue character like you see in, in Jedi with, um, with Rey, where you're like, well, why is she just like amazingly good at everything? Uh, you're sort of, you know, the legend is built up. It precedes him. He becomes like Paul Bunyan standards of people, you know, fishtail style, think that he's way better than maybe he he really is. Even though in the instances where he's like, uh, we got you now, Josie Wales, he gets out of all of those situations. Like there's three or four of them in a row where they've got him dead to rights and they don't just shoot him. They, like... They're ridiculous situations, by the way. I mean, the way he gets out of them, ridiculous. <laughs> Well, the Miz- he, first of all, the Missouri boat shoots, ride was fun. That one was fun. He, sh- he shoots a rope from who knows how far away, splits it in half with a single shot. Are you kidding me? He's that good. Okay, he's that good. And then he's got two guys with two guns on him. Yeah, Ladge and Abe. They try to and, nab him. And he's holding these his own guns out, you know, butt firsts. And he flips them around and guns both guys down before they can get a shot off. Well, Sweet Rose Alabama boy um, shoots the one. Oh, wait, wait, wait. No, the, I'm sorry. I'm talking about in the... In in- the Trading post, yeah. Trading post, yeah, with the girl. Yeah, the, the squall. squall. Yeah. Oh, and and before we get into that, um, and and well, it's sort of related. So you know, they they say bring your guns out, um, but first they're disarming him, trying to defang yeah. him is what they say. Why um, don't they just shoot him in the head? Right, but this this also reminds me of uh, when the um, the Confederate guys went down to the Union camp to uh, turn themselves in, and they had to hand hand over all their guns. They had to be disarmed, right? And I mean, that's what happens when you disarm people, you, you disarm a population, then the authority, quote unquote, the authority have free reign over you. There's no means to defend yourself at that point. Yeah. Yeah. When they turn in over their guns and then they're just shoot, you know, sitting ducks for whatever the union want to do to them. That's what you do. That's why you disarm, you know, your enemy before you mass slaughter them. That's why Hitler disarmed the Jews before he started mass slaughtering them. It's it's why tyrants are always in favor of gun control because you, you don't like it when, you know, your victims can fight back. Yeah, precisely. And and this ties in and we'll get back to the movie in a second here, but the whole Second Amendment argument that people have and they're like, oh, well, they didn't mean anything beyond a musket. No, what they meant was after throwing off a tyrannical government, they weren't about to say, OK, from now on, only tyrannical governments can have guns. <laughs> that makes no fucking sense, right? Like they just threw one off. So to think that they can now, OK, now we're going to limit what the, the people can have is totally the antithesis of what the intention would have been you know they're not going to go through all that effort the 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 militias of the revolution with their rifles and their training threw off probably the greatest army in the world at the time right why would they then turn around and go eh guns who needs them right and then people like to talk about a well-regulated as in the present day sense of the word like 
government controlled and dictated. No, well-regulated at that time meant well-equipped with the intention of being equal to or better equipped than the government itself so that they had the means to defend themselves. Yeah. All right. I'm getting off my soapbox here. Getting yeah, you off can my be soapbox. on a soapbox all you want, Daniel. It's your show. Do what you want, buddy. All right. Well, so here's the other thing about this. The senator fucking lied to them, right? The senator <gasps> said, oh, yeah, you're going to you know, turn you guys in and blah, blah, blah. It wasn't just the union soldiers doing it. It was a politician. Are you kidding me? A politician didn't tell the truth? Right. Didn't tell the truth. But we always do tell the truth when we're launching. I might new- faint. <laughs> Launching new ideas in your direction at thelaunchpadmedia.com, which we are the Monday show. I, I have lately been forgetting to mention that earlier in the episodes. We're about 20 minutes into the last nighters here. And hey, we're on the Launchpad Media. Just so you know, check it out. Well, even uh, good old Ten Bears says that governments are achieved by the uh, double tongues, which is which is a nice line. Right. And the ferryman does the same thing, right? He's, he's uh, singing um, Dixie when he's bringing the Southern guys across and, mm-hmm. and even as he leaves their side of the shoreline and then he halfway across starts uh, singing amazing grace or whatever the, you know, union. Northern, equivalent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, everyone's two faced in this thing. Um, and then uh, let's get to uh, God, what's his name. Um, the old man, the old Indian guy, he is like my favorite. He is an awesome, awesome dude. And he's talking about how he's civilized the five civilized tribes because they dressed mm-hmm. like Lincoln. Um, but he knows from the Trail of Tears, he talks about how you can't trust the white man. And yeah, it's Lone Weighty is his name. And Well, you can't trust government. Right. That's and, for sure. And I think what he meant by that was government. He was talking about like Secretary of the Interior and, and uh, Lincoln and all those guys. And, and I, I love when um, he decides to start going, traveling with Josie after he tells Josie the story and Josie just falls asleep because he has he gives zero fucks about anything. That's <laughs> <Yeah>, true. <laughs> Um, but when uh, Lone Wadey decides, okay, I'm going to you know, hook up with this dude and we're going to go travel, uh, he burns his Abraham Lincoln clothing and starts dressing like Josie. Good for him. All right. So- yeah, I, I, it's sad that um, you know, oftentimes the behaviors of government get ascribed to you know, a people as a whole. But you know, it happens a lot. Right, and, and I mean, later on. Throughout the world and throughout time and throughout history. Later know, on when like, they're talking about ten bears, they're like, yeah, your generals have been coming back every year taking more and more land, pushing him further and further back. And he's at the point now where he's not willing to move anymore. And Eastwood's reply is, they're not my generals. Yeah. He's like, governments are always lying to you, but I'm here to tell you the truth. I give you my word of death or my word of life. It's a pretty badass little interaction between those two. Yeah. Uh, I know we're we're sort of jumping ahead because that's near the end. Uh, and I want to say that after seeing that speech, I was like, oh, man, of course. Yeah, I mean, Clint Eastwood, he, he speaks about libertarianism. Here and again, I've got some quotes from him that are really quite good. And that speech between the two is 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 very um, libertarian in my mind. They're like, sure. you know, I respect your right to live, but if you want to aggress against me, well, then you're going to have to deal with me defending myself and vice versa. And I'm offering you either. You know, you pick. Um, uh-huh. I'm willing to do both, and I'm hoping for one. But if you, yeah. you know, do the other, then you're going to pay the immediate cost of that. Right. And, you know, two people, very different people can— Live together in peace, side by side, without you know both having you know a vested interest in living and trade and cooperation. It's only when governments get involved that they just screw everything up. I mean, not that there aren't problems and there wouldn't be problems in a free society, but you're just guaranteeing problems and conflict and everything else with governments who are constantly promising things to people who want the government to do things because they want you know a return on their tax investment, I guess you could call it. 
or their contributions or their bribes or their underhanded dealings. I mean, it's, right. it's, you know, it's that ring of power that they're all grasping for. And those who do have that, the grasp on it, have favors that they can sell. So that's going to draw people to try to buy favors from them. And that's going to make them be these, you know, double-tongued, two-faced liars and do the exact opposite of what they say they're going to do. And that's, it's like the recipe. It doesn't matter how good the person is uh, in most cases, like the occasional Ron Paul you'll get, uh, but it's so few and far between. I mean, the Lord Acton quote is like, so prescient in this, in that just having that power, even if you go into it with good intentions, you're going to get corrupted. It's just how that's the game. It's the only way to get anything done, right? Right. And even with the people who believe that they're not corrupted, like they're, they believe that they're doing these things for the benefit of society. Like I, I, you know, I'm not going to take this dirty money from this corporation and do this thing, but I'm going to pass this law that, you know, 51% of the people voted for or whatever for the good of the people. Well, you're still tyrannizing the 49%. I mean, you know, all these politicians that are passing these, you know, straw laws or plastic bag laws or, you know, anti-smoking laws or any, there's a billion of these things. They all think that they're doing the right thing. They think this tyranny is just the greatest, that these are how people should act and ought to act. What they don't realize, or maybe they do, I don't know. But what they're saying is, is that anybody who does this and refuses to comply ought to die. And that sounds like hyperbole, but it isn't. What's the logical conclusion of any law? If you say, want to sell some straws and someone comes up to you and says, you can't do that anymore. There's a law, passed a law. And you're like tough. I don't care. I'm selling these straws. Well, now there's this conflict and who's going to win that conflict. And so then they say, well, okay, we're going to fine you. Well, I'm not going to pay the fine because I believe I'm right in my right to sell straws. Well, you don't pay that fine. You're going to go to jail. Well, I'm not going to jail. Well, you're going somewhere, buddy. And there's a physical conflict. And if you resist, they you will die. If you resist enough, maybe they'll try and use some kind of soft, non-less lethal measure. Well, people die from less lethal measures all the time. But let's say you never stop resisting. You will ultimately be killed for selling a straw. And these are the goody-two-shoe politicians who think, that, you know, we're just doing the best thing for society. And now I'm off my soapbox. All right. Well, hell is coming to breakfast. Let's get into a little bit of economics for a minute little sidebar here. The granny is in the uh, up-and-coming town that is contrasted later by Santa Rio, which is a um, derelict town that has is on its way to becoming a ghost town. We can talk about that a little bit. I have some points to make there. But granny is buying from the general store, and the guy uh, who works there is from Indiana, and she's talking to him about how she doesn't like Missouri people, and she won't buy products from there, so she's not going to buy molasses. Now, <laughs> they're all a bunch of bushwhackers. Everybody right. knows that. Come on. <laughs> right. I'm not going to buy anything from there. Well, she's foregoing either having that at all, the because um, I doubt he's got molasses from other places, right? You don't have a whole right. lot of selection here. Or she's willing to pay more for molasses from elsewhere. Mm -hmm. This is a market so her mechanism. This is her you know, voting with her dollars, and it's kind of dumb in this particular case, but this is what people do every day. You know, boycotts, buying things from where you want, being willing to pay more or, or wanting the best deal or whatever. And that is so the opposite of the democratic process, even the Republican process, you know, uh, representative government. This is you choosing for you as an individual and paying the cost of that decision. Right. right. And you paying the, the extra cost for her prejudice against goods coming out of Missouri. Right. And then uh, she says, we Jayhawkers, we don't care much about you Hoosiers either. <laughs> but she still buys stuff from him. Well, yes. Yeah, within reason. Come on now, Daniel. Within reason. Yes. All right. So um, there is the uh, the moment in the town right after that where he's holding the goods that he's purchased 
and four Union soldiers uh, get made aware that that's Josie Wales because the Elixir uh, scammer sales guy says, oh, there's Josie Wales. And there's this brief Hang on. Standoff. I take umbrage with your word scammer. We okay. don't know that his miracle stuff didn't create miracles. We never get to see it. I think he gets exposed by um, by Wadey. I think he uses it to take out that stain, the spit stain. Tony <laughs> <laughs> Swift spits on him. After the Missouri boat ride? Yeah. <laughs> right before that? Yeah. Yeah, he probably did get the stain out. Uh, mm-hmm. And it doesn't Lone Wadey ask him if it gets stains out? Yeah. He goes, maybe it'll work on stains. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry to derail you. Go ahead. No, no, it's totally He's... fine. So, so, so he gets called out, and the Union soldiers like, "Oh crap!" So there's this, uh, there's this brief moment because his legend precedes him, right? They're, they're, they know that he's the guy they want to get, but they also know that the legend is that they're going to die. And lo and behold, they do. But um, it was interesting how he surveyed the scene, and he told Lone Wadey about it later. How he chose which one to shoot first because he was going to shoot the one who drew first. And I, I don't know how the, the whole mechanics of these like drawn and fire gun battles work but i guess you know in the old west style which was far less um than what we see in the movies right there's a, a couple of articles um on the mises site about how uh one's called the not so wild west and i think there's a book that's related as well and in it they talk about how the number of um murders and bank robbings uh in the entire 20 25 year period in the old west uh, was actually fewer than in columbus ohio in like 2013 or something like that that sounds about right yeah so anyway um, it was just really interesting because he he was so um, expert level at reading people and knowing which one was going to go first. And he talked about the crazy eyes. And I want to talk about crazy eyes for a minute because Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez has the crazy eyes. You think she's going to shoot first? <laughs> she's already shots fired, man. She's already saying, I'm coming for your wallet. She's already. Uh, it's true. It's your money and I want it now. Can't wait to get your money. It's going to be great. <laughs> Anyway, anyway, I was just wondering that that displayed um, some of his skill, as did the defending himself from the um, the guys on the side of the riverbank who thought they had him dead to rights, and the guys at the trading post. I mean, there are instances where he does do some badass stuff, like he takes on those um, comancheros later on, where um, they're going to rape the girl, and they decide not to because they're going to save her purity for ten bears because they're going to trade him to ten bears. Like he does in do- one of the worst shot scenes in history. <laughs> Fair enough. But Josie does do some pretty amazing get-out-of-jail-free cards here on his, you know, amazing skills. No, he's a, he's a badass. It's true. He is. I'm not saying he's not. I just I just question whether or not he's, you know, I mean, he's a flawed hero, I guess. You know, he doesn't act like, and he's kind of like an anti-hero, I suppose. I guess he's only spitting on the bad people. Although what that dog did to anybody, I'll, I'll never know. But, you know, when he spit on the... um. The elixir salesman. I was like, WGF, bro. Come on, he's just selling a product. What do you what do you got? If you don't want the product, don't buy it. But you don't gotta spit on the guy. Yeah, I'm kinda with you there. I mean, the guy, he he was a smarmy guy. But yeah, spitting on him was was over the top. I, I didn't mind him spitting on the, the guys who just tried to murder him. I'm kind of okay with that. Like that's on like, their dead corpses? Yeah, it's like, hey, I, I defended myself and I'm an angry motherfucker. <laughs> that's my vengeance, and I'm gonna spit on you. <laughs> Because it's his thing. Well, it's his thing, but he's also, I guess when you're, you know, you're chewing that chaw, you got to spit on a regular basis because you can't swallow that stuff. So, you know, I suppose it's whatever. Yes. All right. So let's get into Lone Wadey because I know that you want to talk about this part. Lone Wadey, we've already talked about him a little bit. He was one of the civilized tribes. He was wearing the Lincoln outfit, then he burned it. But they're at the riverbank with the squaw and they're like, oh, you got to have an edge. And they're watching her like clean her legs or whatever. And like, oh, she's got an edge right there. And later on, we discover the old man has mad game. 
Yeah, yeah. He says he's not as old as he thought he was. And good on him. And a boy. But I, I found that he was quite spry when they um, they say, oh, we're, we're being followed. Let's go across the sand here. And then they get to a berm, and somebody jumps off um, and knocks down the, the person who's been following them. And it turns out it's the squaw. And when I first saw that happen, I was like, oh, that's got to be Clint, right? No, it's the old man. He's spry, man. Yeah, yeah, he's a good guy. Um, yeah, I don't know, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what your fascination is with this old dude, but uh, I mean, uh, if I'm, I'm, if I'm as spry as he is at that age, that'd be great. I mean, he is a, he is kind of the, I don't know if you want to say the, like the soul of the movie. That's not the right word. He's almost the comic relief. He's, he's a bit of the foil. He's the personality that Clint doesn't bring. You know, Clint, as much as I like him, and and a lot of it's because of his libertarian leanings. But he's sort of the same guy in almost every one of his westerns that I've seen. In every one of his movies. <laughs> he plays just like this cranky old gruff dude almost all the time. I can't think of a movie where he's not like some silent or quiet, stoic, you know, straight man dude. Every which way but loose. Is he like the wacky guy? He's got the Isn't orangutan. He, yeah. Isn't he got like, he's got an orangutan, but the orangutan's the one with all the personality, right? <laughs> and he's just gruff old Clint Eastwood. Rawr, this monkey. Yeah, yeah, you could be right. I haven't I seen know. that one. In a long I, time. I haven't seen that movie in a million years. Who knows? Let me ask you this: Have you have you seen this movie before? Yes. Okay, I I had not. I've seen a bunch of Clint movies, but it's been a long time. And I got to say, I when he did that um, that detente or the parlay with Ten Bears, I was like, oh, this is sweet. You know, now Ten Bears is gonna like become his his gang, right? They're gonna fight the uh, the Red Legs, and that never came to fruition, which is a little bit sad, but. They didn't even need him. They they defended themselves quite well, just from the um, you know the uh, defensive position they had in the little ranch. Yeah, yeah. It seems strange for them to. I mean, I like the uh, the, the 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 meeting between Clint and Ten Bears, and it's a good chance for them to really show their character. But why forge that alliance if it's not going to do anything at the end of the movie? It's kind of strange, and it happens right almost at the end of the movie anyway. I mean, that's like the penultimate scene is him going to see Ten Bears, and then right after that is the big finale for the most part. Right. So maybe it was a bit of a misdirection, like to the audience, you know, it's like, all right, there's going to be this huge clash. And then when 10 bears never shows up, um, then you realize that they could do it on their own. Maybe, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm reaching a bit here, but I, I also wanted to talk about Santa Rio because it's, it's like the opposite of the other town that they were in originally. And there's still these people hanging out in uh, what's the bar's name, the, the lonely lady. And they say, first the silver ran out, then the people, then the whiskey, then the beer. Well, I got to ask, what are you still doing there? That was exactly my question. First of all, it looked like, I mean, I understand the budget probably wasn't super high, but it looked like, you know, they just, in some canyon somewhere, they just threw up a couple of old buildings because it didn't look like it was ever anything to begin with. But whatever, maybe some old ghost town, you know, that's what it looks like these days too. But when he goes in there and they're just sitting around, not doing anything and having no reason, I mean, where's the food coming from? Where's the water? Where's any kind of money whatsoever for whatever reason? And why, when these people are just sitting around going, yeah, everything's gone, why are you still there? What? What's keeping you? Yeah, and it, we talked about no this. We talked about this a little bit in our cars episode, and I forget how uh, what episode number that was. But um, look back in our in our catalog, and you'll find it because they're they're living on um, Highway Route sixty six, and then the highway gets built, and the town dies. But all of the establishments try to hang on, and they just fall into derelict condition, similar to Santa Rio here. And so I see a lot of strong parallels. Like, well, if you're responding to changes, you know, because everything you do is is you're trying to forecast the future. You're trying to make decisions that you think are going to improve your situation. 
they're not being very good forecasters here. They're not being very good entrepreneurs here in keeping their business in a totally dead town. They're not even even coming close to observing objective reality. Like Radiator Springs people, at least there was a road that people would sometimes drive as like a scenic road that people would take to go, you know, eventually pass through Radiator Hills, Radiator Springs. Like there was that, you know, the very beginning of the movie. And then the, like when there's the romance happening, they drive through the hills and it's all windy and nice. And you could see some sports cars or some motorcycles driving through, eventually getting there. But what's, what's anybody going to this little dump of a ghost town for no reason? Not only would nobody go there, there's no reason for anybody to go there. Like there's not even a trading post. Like there's, it's not like a path between places because there wasn't even anything for them to get there. Like he orders some whiskey, he orders some beer. They don't have anything. What do, what do they eat? Are they eating tumbleweeds? I don't know. Yeah. So that part doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But anyway, uh, moving on, let's talk about... Let's see, what do I have here? Oh, when, when they get to the, the little ranch that Granny has heard about from her son, who said he was fighting for the just cause, the union, um, she starts cleaning it up, and Clint is just, like, standing there in the doorway. And she says, if you don't work, you don't eat around here. And I didn't figure you for a loafer. Now, I, I kind of like this a little bit. Though then later on, she does the exact opposite thing. But when she's talking about you don't work, you don't eat, do you think she means if you don't join the commune, everyone does the equal work everyone gets the equal food or does she mean more in the you 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 get the rewards that you work for how did you read that because the second part i'm going to say is going to taint the response that i had i got the feeling that it was more in the sense that in a commune sense in the sense that you know when you're in a family family's kind of a commune kind of i mean you don't pay for anything i mean you're all, you're generally all associated by blood but not always but you know you don't necessarily have to contribute something in order to get fed especially as a small child but as you grow up and maybe you're a little bit older maybe you're an adult or a teenager you're definitely more expected to pitch in and contribute and if she's taking it to the level of you don't work you don't eat period then that's taking it to the level of commune where you're expected to eat or you're expected to work and then you can eat that's that's the way i took it right and oddly enough uh it would also work out that way in ancapistan if you don't work you're not going to eat either <laughs> unless people are being charitable that's right right so we square that circle but but you're right the next thing she says or um Wadey says, his granny says, this is our home. It's all of ours. So yeah, she really is saying, you know, this is all, we're all together and we now all equally own the same thing. Like we don't have individual property rights. We have collective rights here. But it would have been hers, right? I mean, it's her son who'd, whose property it was. So now she's kind of like sharing it with everybody. And if, you know, you own a piece of property, you have every right to be able to do that if you want. Right. And these other people were there to help her, right? They pledged helping her. Um, right. The people in the bar, the, the lonely lady, the lusty lady. Do you remember the lusty lady? It's gone now in downtown Seattle. They used to have the funnest, funniest signs on it. The lusty lady. It's ringing a bell. I don't think I ever went in there. Was that? Oh, oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, the iconic yeah, yeah, yeah. sign. And they always had some funny, like, quirky um, little quip on there. Yeah, it's like, you know, 99 hot girls and two ugly ones or whatever it was. I think that's a different thing, but... Oh. Um, Okay. <laughs> but it's a similar deal. It's like a peep show type place. I think I went in there once when I was 18. Right on. Sure, Daniel. But anyway, it's gone now. Now it's condos. But uh, yeah, the lonely lady, the the people pledged to like help Granny because they um, had known her son and really liked him. Yes. All right. So I wanted to also talk a little bit about the no offense taken stuff because they do a tit for tat, which is kind of fun. 
because Granny's like when they're talking about defending the house because they think they're going to get attacked by the Comanches. Granny says she doesn't like Redskins or something like that. But Wadey's right there and he's an Indian. And she says, no offense meant. And he says, none taken. And this is where they're talking about how they got to get mean. Don't lose their heads. Don't give up. Because if you give up, then you neither live or win. And that's just the way it is. That's how things work. And he puts on like um, war paint and says it's his death face. And when he said it's his death face, I think she in the movie seemed to understand it as he thought he was going to die. But I read that as, no, it's his war face. You know, it's like my death face is if you fuck with me, you are going to die. Right. And the the whole tit for tat thing with the and then, you know, Granny is shooting or no, the Indian guy is shooting some some pale skins he's like i'm gonna show these pale skins what for or whatever and then he says no offense and she says none taken yeah i think i think it was pale face but yeah right so you know it's not necessarily like i mean yeah i guess you could call these like racist terms i suppose well they'd call what they really what they really mean is you know these people come in to try and kill us and they just so happen to be what i'm describing you know uh, that you know uh the Indians before the white man came, you know, they, they fought all the time with each other and they had no qualms about, you know, killing other Indians and hell white people have been killing each other all the time since time immemorial too. It's, it's not necessarily, I mean, I hate to say the left, but the left really likes to play up the whole race angle when it's really many, many other factors that, you know, contributes to conflict and violence and murder and death and whatever. But, you know, they like to look at this lens, the world through this lens of racism, and that's what caused this. Now, definitely racism helps. Racism absolutely helps when you're trying to demonize your enemy. When you're trying to get people who have no dog in the fight to all of a sudden hate a bunch of people and send their children to go fight and die in some war. They will, you know, demonize anybody for any any kind of difference they can glom onto. Dehumanize them, yes. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter. If, if if they were a bunch of people who hated, you know, Voltron, and you guys like Voltron, then you'd be like, oh, these Voltron haters, let's go kill them. I mean, just whatever they can possibly think of. And race is just a big, fat, easy target. So it gets used a lot in history. And if it w- hadn't have been race, if, if all human beings all looked the same, it would be some other reason. It used to be it used to be that left handed people were you know discriminated against and that, you know, when you were born or you were like you were a little kid and you'd pick up something and try and draw with something left handed, like your father would like slap the thing out of your hands and like pick it up with your right hand. Yeah, it's like in the King's speech. We did that one not too long ago. Yeah. So it, it's just it's it's human nature. It's not necessarily it's just racism. It's just this big, fat, easy target that gets used a lot because it's big, fat and easy and obvious. And, you know, people look differently than you. So they probably are different than you, Daniel. They probably eat babies. They probably do. Now, here's the interesting thing is, you know, we've often talked about, well, they couldn't make this movie now. I don't think they could uh, with the, you know, red skin and pale face and, and a lot of the other kind of things that they talk about. But, I mean, it's it's almost to the point now where you can't even talk about something like we might get, I don't know, people upset for even bringing it up yeah if this movie was made today like the way that um that other movie was remade recently gosh what is that movie magnificent Magnificent seven Seven or whatever oh yeah it's all pc now yeah it'd just all be sanitized all scrubbed free of any kind of uncomfortable dialogue any kind of interesting themes any kind of you know character just scrubbed free of any of that stuff any of that uncomfortable stuff from the past that human beings used to talk about all the time and didn't really give shit about you know how your grandparents used to be like casually racist because they just that's just the way people talk. They didn't really care. It's not that they had a whole bunch of hatred and whatever in their hearts for these other people. That's just a way to talk. I I really 
I couldn't, you know, if someone is actually racist, it's like not even the worst thing in the world. I care what you do, what your actions are, not what you believe. You could be as racist as you want. Yeah. And as long as you're not hurting somebody, I really don't care. I mean, I probably won't want to hang out with you, but. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. If, if, if I knew someone who was openly racist in that respect, I, w- I just wouldn't want to associate with them. But I wouldn't go looking for racism in totally neutral things, which it seems to be like they're on a scavenger hunt the left for anything that can well, be they're... possibly construed as right well it's the oppression olympics so you got you got to be looking for oppression everywhere you can <laughs> you got to be digging it up under every rock yeah it's always western culture racism or capitalism's fault all the in the world yeah patriarchy it's men it's white men it's white western men essentially uh, we're just the most evil people who have ever existed for some reason now i'm not even like too keen on the whole you know alt-right stuff but I do think that there is something to be learned from Western culture, and it has developed the most, you know, like vibrant economic situation. And everyone just sort of disregards that and just wants to kill the golden goose, so to speak. Yeah, dis- disregards it at the same time as enjoying the fruits of it. Yeah, and and even if even if you get into, into a debate with these guys, with these people, these see, I just did it again. Call them guys uh, with these Jersons, Jersons peoples. I don't know, but. Uh, even if you respond to their first or second or third uh, fallacy that they believe, you know, um, and you counter it eloquently and, and decisively, logically, empirically, et cetera, they'll just have another one right after it because they already have that sentence of death for capitalism in their pocket. And when it's identity politics, you know, basically it doesn't matter what you say because you're a cis white male and all your arguments are invalid from the get go. So they can equally you can just be dismissed. It's the elixir, dude. Their argumentation is the elixir. It's good for anything. It's the elixir of racism. You're a racist. You're a fascist. Whatever, you know? So why should I listen to anything you have to say? Right. And it, it, it cures everything, every argument. It always... <laughs> they don't have to think. All they have to do is throw that elixir, that tonic, out there. And bim, bam, thank you, ma'am. They... <laughs> that's probably offensive now. Um, they, uh, they get to walk away feeling like they've got the moral high ground, even though they're, they're the ones advocating for government violence. Anyway, I digress. Uh, let's get into the final stretch here because we got to start winding this one down. I want to talk a bit more about the the meeting between Ten Bears and Josie. And I wrote down a couple of um, of the lines here. So it, why don't I just read them out to you and then let's discuss. Is that cool with you? I will bear with you. Oh, man. You know, I had a string of like five or six shows in a row where I was doing the bad puns. And I, I squashed that. And here you are bringing that up again. All right. Thank you. Thank you for that, Robert. You're welcome. You're welcome. All right. Eastwood talks to Ten Bears and is like, I came here to die with you or live with you. Dying's not hard for men like you and me. It's the living that's hard. When everything you've ever loved has been butchered or raped, governments don't live together. People live together. With governments, you don't always get a fair word or a fair fight. Well, I've come here to give you either one and get either one from you. I came here like this to let you know that my word of death is true and that my word of life is then true as well. And then uh, the Ten Bears responds, it's sad that governments are chiefed by the double tongues. There's iron on your, in your word of death, and there's iron in your word of life. No signed paper can hold the iron. It must come from men. It is good that warriors such as us should meet in the struggle for life or death, and it shall be life. So they just, and then they become blood brothers. And that, that's like the uh, stepbrothers scene where like, did we just become best friends? Yeah, and this is a great example of like, you know, a verbal contract of, of two men getting together and deciding how they're going to behave with each other. And they don't write it down, although I'm perfectly fine if you want to write things down. That's great, too. But these are two people who come to an understanding. And, you know, if either one of them ever violates that understanding, there would be retribution. And I think either one of them would perfectly understand why. Yeah, they, this they, is how, they yeah, this is how things would get solved. And yeah, with mutual respect. Yeah, so I, I really enjoyed this. And then... um 
there was one point, let's see, no signed paper can hold the iron. And I think he was referring to like no treaty or constitution really holds you bound to your agreement. It's the men themselves that need to bind them to the agreement. Yeah, I, I would think, I mean, very few people in history of the United States have been screwed over by the United States government as much as the Native Americans were. That's, I mean, they were shuffled around and murdered and Treaty, fought against. Treaties violated. No, the treaties were just, yeah, absolutely untrustworthy pieces of paper. So I could see why that line was written and why the, the Native Americans had a healthy distrust of any kind of, you know, agreement or treaty made with the, the government in the United States. Yeah, and sometimes trouble just follows a man. So let's get into the. Um, we already talked a little bit about how they defend themselves. Well, wait, wait. Before we before we move on, I just want to say, you know, even if even if you know some government bureaucrat makes a treaty with you know some tribal chief and has the best of intentions and truly intends to honor that agreement, well, he's out of office in a couple of years, and the next guy come in and is like, eh, who cares? How's the other guy? I got a whole new policy, and this happens all the time. These new people, they don't feel, you know, obligated by the agreements made by others. So, I mean, that, that, it's just the nature of the system, I would say. Yeah, I'd agree. And, and you know, he says with governments, you don't always get a fair word or a fair fight. And that's what you see. That's exactly what you're talking about. And we dive into this quite a bit in our entire series with Liberty Weekly on Wild Wild Country, which I highly recommend that people watch that on Netflix and then check out uh, each episode that we did, an analysis of it, at uh, libertyweekly.net slash WWC uh, with Pat McFarland and then some guest hosts while he was um, studying for the bar exam. And then we just finished the last two episodes in a double feature um, with Sherry Voluntary. So that one's really good. Really cool. I had a lot of fun on that. Me too. Even though we had a little bit of technical difficulties, I think it'll all come together. Phrasing. All right. So let's talk a little bit about them defending themselves from the red legs. And then Clint goes after the leader guy and sepakus him. Sepa kills him with his own sword. It's badass. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, I had a bit of an issue with that. So am I to believe that the leader of these, this, this group of people coming to kill Clint is also one of the guys that killed his family. That's yes. the impression I got, but yeah. I wasn't sure. Yeah, he was the leader of the Red Legs. The Red Legs was this regiment that was going around doing this stuff, and it was the Red Legs who had killed his family. Right. So, okay, so this if this is the story, guy kills your family, then guy joins murder gang trying to kill these guys. Ultimately, he leaves the murder gang, goes off on his own, and is hunted by new murder gang. Guy escapes, guy escapes, guy escapes, ultimately gets revenge on Guy because he just happened to be one of the guys who chased him. I really don't, that doesn't feel satisfying to me. It's like, oh, that was kind of a coincidence. Oh, that was a happy accident that I just so happened to get revenge on the guy who killed my family because he just so happened to be one of the guys who was chasing me. I like my protagonists to really, you know, if he wants a thing. Seek it out and get it, not just be like, oh, well, that was nice. He just so happened to be one of the guys who was chasing me. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I'll give you that a little bit. I mean, it, it does tie the story together, of course. But um, earlier on when he's talking, I think, to Wadey for the first time, he says, because uh, Wadey wants to go south to Mexico, like head through Texas. And Josie says, I got unfinished business in Missouri. So I thought that that meant he, his mission of vengeance isn't complete yet. Which is good, because it wasn't. But are you to tell me that if he hadn't killed this guy in this final showdown here, the movie would have continued for another whoever knows how long as he travels over to Missouri to try and find this one guy? I don't think so. 
I think if 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 this guy didn't happen to be part of this group, then he would have just survived, and then he would have been you know living with this these these family here in this little branch, and that would be the end of the movie. Maybe I I, I don't know. I it didn't it didn't sit right with me. It just it didn't it didn't leave me satisfied. Let's put it that way. Okay. I like the little showdown, but first of all. The Alamo scene, not great. Not great. How terrible are these ex-army guys that they don't kill a single person and they all get massacred? Oh, and how many are there? I mean, it seems like there's maybe a dozen of them approaching the house. And then during the fight, there's at least 30 of them. Yeah, at least 30 of them get shot. It's just like endless guys that keep getting shot and getting getting ketchup on their shirts. Oh, well. It's the 70s. It's fine. All right, so let's talk about the very final, the final end. I mean, you were talking about you had an unsatisfied feeling at the end of him killing the Red Legs commander. How about when he runs into Fletcher in The Lonely Lady uh, with the uh, Texas Ranger um, bounty hunter dudes? And they're like, yeah, uh, so you say you saw Josie get gunned down by five uh, Comanchero dudes? All right, can you sign here? You know, just sign this paperwork. The bureaucracy will be happy and we'll be on our way. Yeah, it just made me think of, you know, how many tall tales and wild stories, you know, got spawned and how easily it was back then, I suppose. You know, and you can't just get on the Internet and find out something when you just have, you know, eyewitness testimonies and signatures and to establish the facts of a case. And yeah, um, I thought it was pretty good for the most part. I liked that, you know, there wasn't another showdown i like that they just kind of had an understanding and they were going to let you know enough blood be shed that they were going to go on their separate ways i thought that was kind of cool yeah i was a bit surprised that fletcher was get given like what clint didn't have hate for the guy like i would have thought okay you were the commanding force the commanding person for the force of um death squad (laughs) that i was a part of with you and you sent all of your men to turn themselves in and get murdered you're sort of on the hook for that so I would think that Clint or Josie would be upset about this and want vengeance against him as well. But yeah, he didn't seem to be. Maybe he didn't blame him. It's it's not clear that he knew or even suspected that. I mean, he did mow down a whole bunch of Union guys with that Gatling gun and then escape somehow like a magician. Yeah, it's <laughs> like he's David Copperfield. He's in this he's in this wagon and it's not like there's anything behind the wagon for a great distance. And then they go up to this wagon and suddenly he's just gone. <laughs> Abracadabra. You know, <laughs> you know, you know Daniel. He's Houdini. You know, he's, he's you got to have some flair. You got to have some showmanship. And when you can just disappear into thin air, you know, that's how legends grow. Indeed. And speaking of legends, let's get into our final summary and review. Robert the Legend, you may go first. All right. So the outlaws, the Josie Wales's guy, he's um he's a tough talking dude. He'll spit in your face if he doesn't like the look in your eye. Um, you know, I I, I remember I think I saw I read an interview where Clint Eastwood you know really liked this movie, like it was his best work, his most complete work, at least up to that time, and it probably was. I don't know if he had you know really directed much before this, but he's certainly go on gone on to direct many many great films. And he, I I don't know if he's just a better director than he is an actor. I think he's perfectly fine as an actor, but he definitely does not have a range. Not that he really casts himself or gets cast in roles he's not suited for. Let's put it that way. He's kind of like you know they know what he's good at and will put him into that role, and he'll do just fine and that's the way it works which is fine just don't go expecting him to really blow your mind um and you know it felt watching this 
like kind of a first directorial type of effort. It didn't feel super great. It wasn't clean. The the, the shots weren't great. Um, you know, it, it just didn't, the story didn't quite flow very well for me. It felt like there were some scenes that could have been in there would explain things better. But for what it was, I, I enjoyed it. I appreciate the kind of libertarian feel to it. Um, but I, I don't know if this is like one of the great Westerns of all time. I certainly don't feel that way about it. But it is it is kind of fun. It's kind of fun. I'll put it that way. It's fine. It's a fine. It's just a movie that's pretty good movie. Watch a movie if you want to watch a movie. It's a it's a six. It's a six point five. And that's the truth. Well, I'm going to send you on a Missouri boat ride, Robert. You son of a bitch. Not if I spit in your face first. You know, I, I enjoyed this movie. It, it it was awesome. I was intrigued from the start. And, you know, the guy seeking vengeance for his family being murdered in front of him and going out and uh, training up to become expert level to, to achieve that vengeance is, it's a story that I, I just really enjoy. And him getting out of all of those situations where they've got him and he just doesn't bat an eye about it. He's just like so cool as a cucumber and but wait a minute wait a minute i'm taking umbrage with your your review here i apologize to interrupt but we don't see him training to get harder and get better we just see a montage and then he's the terminator after that yeah and as you know in a movie the musical montage of him training makes him expert level jacked up (laughs) matrix kung fu style you know this fair enough fair enough he becomes neo and the terminator due to montage right Right. And a buzzard's got to eat, same as worms. So that was the other thing. He's cold-blooded. Like, even after the Alabama boy dies, he sends his corp through the camp as a diversion because he says, well, they, they can bury you better than, than I can. And they shoot him up. Uh, meanwhile, he just nonchalantly makes it into the um, Indian lands. And I was like, Rick James style, cold-blooded. But anyhow, uh, I really enjoyed this movie. This was a recommended movie by someone in the uh, the Launchpad Media Group. He's like, you got to do... The outlaw Josie Wales, and we had an opportunity. The thing uh, for our what we were going to record fell through, so I'm glad that it did. And I watched this last night and really, really enjoyed it. I'm I'm up there at like an 8.8. Man, this thing is uh, it's a fun movie, and I I'm excited to watch more Clint Eastwood actually as a result of this one. Wow, for Eastwood, anytime he's made a series of, of fine films. I'd say his best. Well, I don't know if it's his best, but starting with Unforgiven and then moving forward after that, I think is things really got good for that guy but yeah as far as the directing directing level yeah as yeah. far as the directing level i think he, he he upped his game his chops got really good in the 90s yeah unforgiven was i think 92 and then uh grand torino's good million dollar baby uh was he he was in in the line of fire was that in the 90s i can't remember maybe that was in the 80s but maybe yeah maybe it's in the 90s and then of course know. there's the dirty harry stuff i know um i know we should probably do one of those at some point as well so anyway, plenty of clean Eastwood to do. Uh, so we'll probably need to like start um, sprinkling it in into future episodes. Speaking of future episodes, next week we'll be back with uh, Jack V. Lloyd's special guest for Schooling the World. Uh, it's a documentary about the education system, and we're going to have lots to chew on on that one. So do join us for that. Uh, you can find this episode at thelaunchpadmedia.com. The is important for that. So thelaunchpadmedia.com, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. You can find the show notes and more for this episode at launch... Last Nighters, the www.lastnighters.com 
slash 34. And Robert, final word before we say goodnight from last night. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Every every click, every listen, every share just warms my, my cockles. So if you want to warm cockles, that's what you got to do. It's really super simple. But yeah, you want to grow the show, make us happy, make yourselves happy, make the world a, a, a more free place in the in the world to live with your families and your friends and your babies and uh, and your Josie Wales. So take care, everybody. We'll, we'll check you next time. All right. Good night from last night.